Okay, so that's all we're going to play of that because we don't want to be sued and we, we really can't afford any more negative publicity. Uh, although, actually, it, all publicity is good. This is Three Point Range. This is Mike Berardino. I'm joined, as always, by our uh, world's leading bracketologist, Kimball Crosley, <laughs> Tim Crothers, Mr. Guarantee, uh, Professor Guarantee. He should have a one nine. A 100 or 900 number coming soon. But uh, the NCAA tournament is behind us. It, uh, COVID, COVID madness, college basketball style is behind us. We have much to discuss. And we're going to go right to the scout, Kimball Crosley. With, uh, he's going to help us put all this into perspective. All right. Well, yes, we are coming to you the day after the Final Four, the championship game. And, of course, Baylor beat Gonzaga. And, you know, if you've been following along, which I assume you have, you know that this was probably a very a great night for me in many ways because I'm not a Gonzaga lover. I didn't want them to win. I, did, I do respect them. I do think they made strides. But it was a beautiful thing to watch that game. And I think the bottom line, if you want to try and analyze the game, is while Gonzaga is quicker than they usually are because they've got a few quick guards, but... I don't know if anyone's quicker than Baylor. <laughs> and just the bottom line is I just think they played a team that just was too quick for them, too quick, one through five. Um, and so that made the difference. And I think the other thing that happened in that game was, uh, it was uh, you know, we've talked about as well, is I, you cannot tell me, I know people talked about Will Gonzaga coming off that UCLA game. Okay, yeah, maybe, but I think what made that worse was because Gonzaga is not used to playing multiple games in a row that are tough opponents. Whereas it's like, hey, we do that twice a week in the Big 12. This is this is business as usual. We play Oklahoma State one night and Kansas the next, you know, two days later, whatever. And, and, and most of these Power 5 conferences do that. And Gonzaga, even though they've beefed up their schedule, you know, when you just, you know, play – one game and you know three weeks against you know whoever West Virginia or somebody like that and say well we played a big team I don't think that's the same so maybe that was a factor because you know people talked about Gonzaga was a little sluggish and they they did seem a little out of it or slow but I don't know if that was just the speed of Baylor or not and 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 look uh, the the other thing that made me so happy was I talked about one of the reasons I never liked Gonzaga was that I didn't think they had defensive identity. And I admit I'm a man-to-man -man snob. I believe in teams that play man-to-man -man and do it exclusively. Really but it was one of the reasons I believe in that is because I really believe that once you switch out of your man and say, well, we better try something else because we're not stopping them, and you go zone as Gonzaga did, good luck going back to your man. Good luck going back to it because, I, you know, I think the kids – the players, they all just go like, well, it's not working. It's not working. Instead of like, well, you know, you got to react quicker. You got to do a better job jumping this ball screen. You got to do a better job boxing out. Instead of like, well, we'll try this. And and Gonzaga had temporary success in their zone, and then it backfired, as often zone does with, you know, um, some big threes. Um, and so I was happy to see them, you know, first time I've seen them all year plays any zone whatsoever, and, and they've really gotten good at man-to-man. But it, it really hurt them. So it was very satisfying. And and look, I, you know, I'm not going to, uh, you know, I do respect Gonzaga. I do think they would have been a worthy champion. I do think Few has done a great job. I do think, you know, 
that that they have built a program worthy of a title. But yes, I was happy that they didn't get it. Um, and but this is you know if you know one of the other things I really believe is the balancing out of the world of sports. And there are a few days in sports that are historic. You know, there's a few days because regular season games don't mean that much. You know, there's there's we see games all day long every every day of the year. But there's only a few days, the Super Bowl, the NCAA championship, the final game of the World Series, where it's just like the finality, where the historic significance, like, nope, forever, that will be Baylor's title, and you can't take that away from him, and Gonzaga still doesn't have a title. And we all know in sports like college basketball, we count the titles, and we can all, you know, the significance of Krzyzewski having five, and Roy Williams having three, and UNC having five under Dean Smith and Roy Williams, and things like that. And so it was a huge day in that regard. And so, yes, I was very happy about that. But here came the sports gods. They said, all right, Kimball, we're going to give you this nice gift. You know, Baylor beating Gonzaga. That's fun. That's fine. But here's what we're going to take away from you. We're going to give you Hubert Davis, the next UNC coach. And I know we might have some words about that later. But I'm not happy about that. <laughs> and that has historic significance. I mean, that could be the next 20 years. I'm going like, why, why? Or the next two or the next three or it's a setback. And I just, you know, you know, again, we can chime in on that later, but I just have a bad feeling about this. I don't think it's the way to go. Um, and then, oh, that wasn't enough. No, 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 no. My Jets. You all know I love my Jets, and you all know I don't want them to do this. Do you know the Jets have drafted more quarterbacks than any other team in the last 15 years? What has it gotten them? That's not the answer. Do you know that they've become now the first team that's going to use a, a, a top three draft pick to draft a quarterback over a four-year stretch because they're going to draft the Mormon Manziel, Zach Wilson, and they think he's the savior, and they made it official by trading Sam Darnold for a few draft picks. And it's just like, you know I didn't want this. You know I didn't want like us putting all our chips in a new savior. And I just have a really bad feeling about this. And just when I was excited about the job, you know, the Jets GM Joe Douglas has done accumulating draft picks and trying to accumulate a, a huge supply of talent and maybe draft a really physical athletic team. Nope, it's just going to be all in like, hey, can Zach Wilson lead us? And I'm just like, no, 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 disaster. And let, let, oh, but I'm still pretty happy come around 1130 at night because Baylor's going to win. And I took this setback of UNC and the Jets. Well, you know, I work for the San Diego Padres, right? And Everyone, you know, is is so excited about the San Diego Padres and the season we're going to have, and it's like, wow, it's almost uncanny. It's it's other other people saying all this stuff about how we might have the second best team in baseball. This, this, and this. Well, old Fernando Tatis goes down <laughs> right before my eyes with a, a shoulder injury that looks like it's going to be pretty bad. So we just like throw that one in there, Kimball. So we just don't enjoy it too much. Just keep it even keeled. And that was my sports day. Now, you guys, I know you're going to debunk my theory, but this was a classic example. Well, it's a, it's another <laughs> round of therapy with Kimball. And yes, uh, it's, that's what this Every is what it's really going to have to <laughs> rename. We knew we had to rename it eventually, but it's going to have to be something with Kimball in it and therapy. And then we'll just go from there. But one thing that you, I'm surprised you didn't mention, and I'm, I would like to hear both of your takes on the dynamic that, yes, it was stunning how quick Baylor was, and no no doubt Gonzaga was surprised by that. You can look at a team on tape. You can watch them even in the arena, but when you're inside the lines against them and they are in every passing lane and they're blowing by you whenever they want to go, and 
and uh, Mr. Timmy's little uh, dream shake doesn't work uh, quite the same against a, a three-headed center. Uh, I wonder about could Gonzaga would it have been a different outcome? Certainly, I think it would have been a better game if that December, early December first meeting had not been canceled. If if Gonzaga could have seen the quickness of Baylor up close, even if they've been blown out by 30 back in December. I, I, you know how I feel about it, trying to go unbeaten, trying to run the, the table in a sport like college basketball. That would have been great for Gonzaga, and I think they would have had four months to use that as fodder. Baylor might have actually taken the court last night a little overconfident because they would have just waxed the floor. I No doubt they would have waxed Gonzaga back in December. There's nothing fluky about last night. But I do think a second bite at the apple would have helped, and Mark Few would have figured something out. Maybe they would have come out in zone. I don't know. Obviously, foul trouble on Suggs had a lot to do with it early on and and leading to to just the, the panic mode. But that's where that was what it meant, I think, in the end, that Gonzaga Baylor the first time back in December was canceled due to COVID. Um, is that the adjustment period was taken away and it was just boom, there it is, nine nothing, good luck. And uh, and it was amazing how CBS tried to keep keep us on the hook. Of course, they want the ratings, but they kept you know, and they oh they've cut it to thirteen. At no point did I feel like they were going to be able to come all the way back once you saw that. As Kimball said, the quickness. The athletic ability, the depth of Baylor, quality depth, interchangeable parts. Where do you start to slow them down? Uh, good for them. Uh, I'll just start out by saying mea culpa. Uh, that that game, um, it made me hark back to 1985. They say Villanova played the fir- perfect game to beat Georgetown. I think the first 15 minutes of that game were about as perfect a game as, as you can throw. Um, I think we, we just watched the future of college basketball um, before our eyes. Five ballers, five athletes, as you say, interchangeable parts. Um, you know, no, no real classic post player, just, uh, just five frigging ballers. And, yeah, I mean, I just – I was just – laughing watching that game thinking thinking yeah Gonzaga every single pass forget every single pass every single dribble was contested and it was beautiful to watch I mean I just I I was just absolutely so impressed uh by exactly by by what what Baylor did I think as I said I think that is the future of college basketball I also think it's entirely possible that that championship will be vacated sometime in the next five years. But, <laughs> but, uh, but who cares, right? Because it was just Good a call. beautiful, a beautiful display of basketball. Um, whether how they got those guys there will come out in the uh, in the investigation. But, but uh, yeah. So in in some way, you know, Gonzaga will end up will will end up getting their championship just just because this one will be vacated and. It'll take a while for me to be vindicated, well, but I will eventually be vindicated. Where, where do you think Gonzaga it's easier to best. recruit to, Waco or, or Spokane? I mean, neither is a garden spot. I, they're both small schools, right, religious schools. I, they, they both would be cheating. Okay, well, and, and entirely possible, but uh, but yeah, good good on Baylor. Uh, as I said, one of the mo- one of the most impressive fifteen minutes of basketball I think I've ever seen, and. Uh, and you know, I, Gonzaga had no no answers. 
except for Suggs. And uh, and yeah, that's that is that is if if you if you are a fan of college basketball and you have a team that uh, that you like, for instance, Kimball and UNC, uh, you you should be rooting for Hubert Davis to potentially follow that model because that that is the model I think of success from that, from here on out out in college basketball at least for the immediate future. Yeah, that that's is one of my fears actually that like Davis will just say all right, we'll we'll still run basically the Carolina system and as I've written about I I don't know if that double post, you know, can work in this day and age even when you've got great ones and I'm afraid he will not transition maybe he will. We'll see. Well, there's a transition to our second point. Uh, I'll go second this time because, uh, yes, Hubert Davis, who was there uh, at the end of, of my time on campus, uh, was just coming to campus as I got there and then acquitted himself well, and a, a well-respected player and then an NBA player and then a fine but decent broadcaster at ESPN. At one time was paired up with Jay Billis. They were equals and then he made that decision, a career decision that I think was questionable at the time. I, I wondered why he would go back to be an assistant, and I'm sure they didn't promise him anything, but uh, nine years on the sideline with Roy Williams, and now it's it's Hubert Davis that gets the, the chance to be the head coach. But as Kimball has suggested, and, and I had a kind of a sinking feeling as well at that, I just sat there and pondered it a bit after I heard it because I was on record thinking Steve Robinson would be the, the safe choice, the safest choice to continue whatever Roy Williams had, had instilled. I mean, still makes a difference if you've never been on a sideline and Steve Robinson had been the, the head coach on the sideline. Hubert Davis uh, has his hands full here, not just because of the expectations, not just because uh, it's an unwinnable task to follow the championship history of Roy Williams and Dean Smith and Bill Guthridge wasn't too bad either in those few years, but um, I did a little research. I, I actually did a little research and I started and once I started, I said, I'm going to share it on the show. So uh, how many since 1991 last three decades, how many first time NCAA championship coaches do you think there have been? There's a lot of recidivism, good recidivism, but first time when you actually win your first championship as an NCAA coach. Well, it's been 18, and obviously Scott Drew uh, went ahead and did it. That was his 19th year as a head coach on the sideline, one at Valpo and then this Baylor run. So I went back and I looked at the 18, everyone from Drew to Bennett to Jay Wright, uh, Calipari, Kevin Ollie popping out there, uh, Bill Self, et cetera, all the way back to Coach K in 1991. The average number of years – as a head coach, before you win your first NCAA title, for those 18 coaches, to, the last 18 coaches to win their first title, and of course, no one's going to be happy at Carolina until Hubert Davis wins a championship. It's 16.3 years, 16 years <laughs> on the sideline before you are a champion. How many years do you think they'd be okay with Hubert getting him to a Final Four? You know, and it can be done. Roy Williams got to a Final Four at Kansas. Very quickly, it was year three for him at Kansas after he replaced Larry Brown uh, ahead of uh, as Larry Brown, another Carolina guy. I always wanted Larry Brown to take over at some point at Carolina. He just aged out of the role, and of course, too too long of a NCAA rap sheet, including SMU. Always loved Larry Brown, but 
Final four, the average of those 18 first-time NCAA champions, their first final four trip, how many years did it take them to get there? 11.3 years on the sideline. Will Hubert Davis be given 11.3 years to reach his first final four? Of course not. Well, you say, well, it's a new era. Look at Joan Howard. He makes it look like, he makes it look so easy. He's got Phil Martelli over there. Everything's easy at Michigan. That's the wave of the, of the future. It's just hire a, a, a former NBA player. Mike Woodson's the coach now at Indiana. Uh, it, it can't be that hard. Well, of those 18 NCAA champion first-time coaches, uh, just three were NBA players. Tony Bennett, Billy Donovan, and Kevin Ollie. And Kevin Ollie didn't end well at UConn. That was, that's an aberration. He did win a championship following the just continuing the Calhoun thing. Won his first championship uh, in year two and then ended up getting fired ahead of the investigators. Uh, the other thing that I'll point out, the crack research uh, staff of one here found that um, does it really matter if it's your first head coaching job? Because uh, can you go ahead and be a champion the first time you're head coach? Yes. Hubert's 50 years old. He's a grown man. He's been nine years as an assistant. He should know what he's doing, but he's never had final say on anything, anything. So how many of these coaches, uh, the 18 uh, in this group, uh, were on their first head coaching job of any sort? And it's just three. Again, it's Kevin Ollie, it's Tom Izzo, who I think Carolina fans should probably seize upon if they want to be optimistic. They look at the Izzo example. He had been with Judd Heathcote for 12 years. He was 40 at the time when he took over. And by year four, he's in the final four. By year five, he wins a championship. No more championships, but he did win that one championship in year five. And the other one's Jim Beheim. And Jim Beheim just blows all the numbers out of the water because he was installed in the mid in the mid seventies, former Syracuse player. Took him eleven years to get to a Final Four, twenty-seven years to win a championship, and of course that's still the only one. So I don't see the numbers the way I obviously you can do anything you want with numbers, but I'm having a real hard time other than the fact that Hubert Davis is related to Walter Davis and is part of the Carolina family and is a perfectly uh, interesting coaching candidate. But that's Carolina. That's one of the premier jobs in the country. What was the hurry? And I don't see anything in this breakdown of the last three decades of paths to championships based on coaching experience that tells me it's going to work for Hubert Davis. I hope I'm wrong. I hope he blows all this out of the water. Maybe he's Kevin Ollie without the investigations. But <laughs> Carolina does need a reboot. Kimball's right. They do need to kind of bring the, the tweak this thing and bring it into the whatever era we're, we're about to enter, which is annual free agency, it appears. So recruiting is going to be vital. But I don't know how first timer brings that all together. What do you think? Uh, I, can I add, ask you to add something to your research? Yes. Factor this in. How many of those coaches you just discussed have have successfully coached the the, the, the JV team? <laughs> how good were how good were those JVs? Did you uh, to catch, back catch a few games? Did you yeah. catch a few games of the of dynasty? The Dynasty. North Carolina being one of the few schools Carolina that has JV a JV, people that don't know. And, and they're, blowing, they're blowing the community colleges off the floor. Is that true? <laughs> Any truth so, to that? They still come out after the game's over, right? When you're trying to write your story, right? They Don't they do that still? They play later? Any truth to that at all? <laughs> what? What are you talking about? I'm telling you that the Carolina, Carolina JV 
is very, very successful. And Hubert Davis coached it, uh, I don't know how many years, but several. And uh, so, I, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek here, but at the same time, you know, those who, those who say he's never, he's never been put in the position of being a head coach before, that's not exactly true. He has been put in, in the position of a head coach. Obviously, it's a different level, but uh, it's not as if he's never been the lead voice in a huddle. I'll just, I'll just point that out. They run the same system, I assume. They always run the same system. I, I think so, yes. <laughs> oh, boy. You're not swayed? Uh, well, it's a little more confident after you mentioned that, you know, and I do, cause I do think it, it is funny, right? Like, you know, it, there, there's a real big difference being an assistant coach and a head coach. And I guess, you know, sometimes the head coach can really over time step aside and the assistant's really doing almost all the coaching and he's the de facto head coach. I mean, I've seen that at a lot of levels in different situations. And so I guess it's possible, but there was felt like no sign of that <laughs> when you watch the North Carolina sideline, right? You never really felt like, cause you know, there's been years where it felt like, um, I think it was when, I think it was when Snyder was at Duke, they, they talked about like, you know, Snyder's calling everything, but Krzyzewski's just working the refs was one story I heard. And I, I don't know how true that was, but when you watch the North Carolina game, you really didn't feel like, like anyone was calling the shots besides um, Roy. Uh, so I don't know. And, you know, there's just a couple, it's small. It's, you know, we have no idea what he's, how he's going to do. I mean, those are some great facts, Mike, but, but like one thing is I, I think about it is, you know, a lot of teams now, college teams hire a shot doctor and we've seen great improvement when a shot doctor comes in and he's just the shooting coach and, you know, Florida state comes to mind, you know, how well they shoot the ball. Um, and then they take guys that, that are, you see are pretty raw athletes and, and they develop pretty good shots and and uh you know syracuse actually which was always talked about as a bad shooting team they've become a very good shooting team they have a shot doctor well i believe hubert was one of his first roles our shot doctor <laughs> i can't recall one guy really taking a step up like just I, I i really can't recall like a guy and if and if caleb love had gotten like started nailing shots but all indications is our recruits got worse <laughs> shooters and that's that's small and who knows wow. and the other thing his, his time as a broadcaster, I don't remember him saying anything really deep or insightful. I mean, it was very generic, which again, you know, raises my concern level. I you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I you know, I was going to make the point several shows ago. What it, was, it didn't make the cut for me, but it was going to be: Does Hubert Davis, who has to pay the price for the the worst shooting Carolina team ever, and what <laughs> isn't that Hubert Davis's job? I was going to suggest seriously about a month ago, maybe he needs to be fired. Because whoever's well, he, responsible, he they'll bring in a new shot yeah. doctor. That was the, <laughs> so that to get him out of the way. So Marcus <laughs> Page, uh, uh, Joel Berry, these were good guards. They were fun to watch. He certainly had a hand in that. There have been others uh, through through his time, but uh, no, I just think that uh, the the CEO of the program, uh, you know, it's, uh, this is just an immense responsibility. It is not seamless just because you stay within the family. If uh, it, it was fascinating to see those names that bounced around and you could tell even who was planting their names out there with the top reporters like i got the sense that billy donovan was pushing his candidacy through the media i got that sense for a couple of different things i saw he's always admired the carolina well i would hope so i know who, who doesn't admire that that p potential job but billy at chicago bulls getting a little frustrated been in the nba for a while but that would have been a fascinating kind of reach into the NBA world, all these players who want to get through college as quickly as possible, get the NBA. I think recent NBA coaching experience would have been a plus. 
Not surprised that Jay Wright had no interest in the job because, it's, again, an unwinnable situation. He's got it rolling at Villanova. Absolutely no reason to shake that up. Mark Few, though, would have been interesting. And, and I wonder, do you guys think Carolina, through back channels or however it had to be done, got the message to Few? Again, I say, why so quickly? Do you think they got the message to Few somehow, hey, would you have interest? And did that, if so, could that have weighed on him in any way, making it difficult to do anything he had to do in, in, in leading up to what he was trying to do for the first time, win a championship? I got the sense that you can't be Bubba Cunningham without getting the word out there back channel somehow, even if it's not a direct phone conversation. Is Mark Few interested? Should we wait? Do you think that happened? Tim's much more plugged in than we are. Do you think that could have happened? And and if it didn't happen, why didn't it happen? I think it, I I absolutely think it, it could have happened and probably did happen, especially because Roy is so tight with uh, with Mark Few. I'd be shocked if if there wasn't some sort of reach out just to see whether it would ha- whether he would be interested. Not necessarily to offer him the job, but sure. I think, but just to see if he would be interested. Um, in fact, I. I talked to Bubba Cunningham after the press conference today, and he he talked about the fact that he did reach reach out to outside sources, outside coaches, he outside the family. He did not mention names, but uh, he definitely confirmed that he did reach out. And so I wouldn't be at all surprised if Mark Mark Few um, was on that list. Uh, but I you know, and I, I have to I have to pull a Kimball here and and say that uh, you know I look at this. Um, the, I'm I'm put in a in a somewhat of a box on this one because uh, I am a I am a huge fan of Hubert Davis for very selfish reasons. He is uh, he has been incredibly good to me. He's a, first of all, he's the nicest man on the face of the earth, and he's been incredibly good to me uh, in terms of the things I do uh, as a professor on campus. Um, incredibly helpful with everything that I've ever asked him to do. And uh, he's the keynote speaker at my high school journalism camp that I run here every uh, every summer. And so I am not uh, I am not a, a an unbiased observer here, but I will say to uh, ask yourselves. And I know Kimball's not a huge college football fan, but ask yourselves: a couple of years ago, did you think Mac Brown was a good hire? I did. I liked it a lot. Really. I was on record You're one with of it. the few. I was on record with it. It's on Twitter. I loved it. it. Made total sense. All right. Well, you you were one of the very few. Well, I you know the, one thing we haven't talked about, which I think is huge, is the pressure that goes with this job is immense. And one of the reasons I think that you know after Dean Smith left, replacing that legend, you know, it didn't go so well. And the only way they could do it they thought was go to a guy that has major gravitas himself a guy that's already had a great run as a a college coach and yes he was part of the program too but i think that's one of the reasons matt doherty struggled so much when when he you know tried to come in after dean and after guthridge i i just think it's not easy, and and I don't think Tom Mizzo was replacing a legend in John Tito. Yeah, no, not not no, quite local, the same. Like he was a popular local guy, but it wasn't one like, championship, you know, like magic how many, championship. How many guys really follow a legend and and do a, a great job? You know what I mean? And and it's hard, the pressure, and and it, it just weighs on the guy, and and especially a nice guy like Hubert Davis, it's gonna weigh on him when he's he's never gonna have have faced anything like that kind of scrutiny and pressure that he's gonna. 
face. And, and that alone could do him in, even if he does it, you know, a great job with other aspects of coaching. Yeah, I wonder too, you know, if they just waited to see how the Celtic season plays out. There's <laughs> enough of that. There's enough of that bubbling under the surface. And I bring that up because it's been out there ever since the Butler days that somehow Duke would be the one that would have to go outside their family because that, that whole coaching tree, Jeff Capel seemed like he was leading, but now everything imploded this year and even little Wojo out of a job. So um, <laughs> there's no obvious candidate, oh. <laughs> no obvious candidate in the Duke family. And I, you cannot judge this Hubert Davis hire in this quick decision, too quick in my mind, just too quick um, until Duke has to replace Coach K. And then you hold him up. Hubert on one hand with two or three years or whatever, maybe just one year in, in hand. And then if that's Brad Stevens over there at Duke, Bubba Cunningham, you got played. You got you had to wait because there's enough rumblings out of Boston that Brad Stevens, I know what he said publicly, but it has not gone that well. Rick Patino came back from the Celtics, and man, I fin Indiana's now filled. He can't go to Indiana. If Brad Stevens ends up at Duke and it feels like a 60 40 proposition right now that by the really? time by the time they're looking he's going to be the guy and it's just not going to go well for carolina and that can that can affect the balance of power as kimball's already mentioned for not just the hubert davis era and we're all hoping that it works out for him but whoever follows whoever follows whoever follows they might never catch up if this blows up in that way it's a two it's there's two shoes to drop here that was the first one and whoever follows Mike Shashevsky, that's the second one. And uh, it's going to be interesting, and it, and it does not feel like it's going to go their way. I, I, I know in order to match that, it would have to be almost like, um, you know, they, they, just, they would just have to make a very bland hire of the nicest former Duke player available. You know, if they put John Shire in there or something, they'd be like, okay, you know, John Shire, how much can he mess it up? Hubert Davis, how much can he mess it up? The answer is a lot. They can mess it up a lot quickly. See Matt Doherty. So, just from the man who told us that the Big Ten would dominate the NCAA. Well, I did. I just said I had the wrong number. It was 12. I needed 12, uh, not 10. I should have listened closer to Fran Fraschilla. And, and I always, when I make mistakes, I go back and I review them. And I didn't watch enough Big 12. But when every, you know, Fran Fraschilla is, is total shill for the Big 12 every year. But, man, he was just adamant uh, that that thing was loaded. And when you think about it, when you think of the teams that you know, could have Pac-12 was really the tournament surprise, but they would to go all the way. Would and hell UCLA almost almost got to the final. That's uh, I have to give Hep Cronin uh, a, a big a big uh, <laughs> salute there. Hep Cronin, I apologies. It was your uh, your telepathic coaching uh, uh, ideas for the young son Mick that uh, nearly made that happen. But uh, no, I oh, I blew it. I blew it. The Big Ten had nine chances and. And I and I read it wrong, and I was a prisoner of something I said in December. And if not for this podcast, maybe I would have watched the Big Twelve a little more than the Big Ten. And I and so it just it just it was a mistake, mistake, mistake. Rolled down the hill. So there you go. That's um, that's that. Now we have to get to third. Well, before we get to our final point, and it's going to be a good one. Uh, we have to remind you, you're listening to Three Point Range, the podcast. There's also Three Point Range, the Substack, Three Point Range, the Facebook page. We invite you to check out all of them. We've been doing this since the week that Gonzaga Baylor was canceled back in early December. Since that very week, 
And I believe this is the first time we've really delved into why that mattered. So that's why you want to listen to the show. Thank you for listening. Okay, and that brings us to our final point. And for that, we will go to the professor to take us home. Yeah, and taking us home is a great way to put it because that's what my final point is all about. The way we were all uh, taken home at the end of the NCAA tournament every year. And I was thinking about it last night. I, I mean, every year I look forward to one shining moment. I know it's cheesy. I know it's corny. Um, but every year I look forward to it. And uh, and I've forgotten. I kind of forget between uh, between seasons how, unfortunately, CBS has absolutely ruined the experience for me. Um, it, it began, and I, I, I encourage our listeners to do themselves a favor. If you really want to get taken back to, the, to your bygone days of watching the NCAA tournament, I, uh, I suggest you Google up on the Google machine the 1987 version of One Shining Moment. It includes the credits, uh, which... which um, Run, used to run before the actual song began, and uh, and they have a nice little instrumental leading up to that. And and I I, I did the reason I know know that so specifically is because I did it last night because I wanted to show my son uh, what one shining moment once was, uh, and I just I have a very very soft spot for it even though I, I think we can all agree it's a it's a pretty cheesy song but. Uh, but I have a soft spot for it because uh, that's that's who I am, hopeless romantic that I am. And I uh, I remember I was fortunate enough uh, when I worked for Sports Illustrated to cover six Final Fours. And uh, for each one of those six, my charge was as soon as the game ended, we used to have a deadline of Monday night. It was the only, only Sports Illustrated of the year that had a Monday deadline. We always had Sunday deadlines. But Monday, we held it open for an extra extra night so we could get the NCAA final into the into the magazine that week and so my my I was never the lead writer I was just a reporter on hand and my my goal was to run around crazy after the game ended and see if I could dig up any little nugget that we could stuff into the story at the last minute and uh don't tell my bosses at SI but but uh there was a point every during every one of those um six final fours when one shining moment began playing that I just stopped working, and uh, I just I would stand there just like the players and coaches always do, and look up at the big video screen and listen to the listen to the song play, and just kind of soak it in. I was as as I said, it was kind of a bittersweet moment that I that I really enjoyed, and uh, it all got me to thinking a little bit. I thought you guys might be interested to know the story behind the story. Um, one shining moment. <laughs> was actually written by a sort of lounge singer. Um, one night he was he was playing a gig in East Lansing at a dive bar in East Lansing, Michigan. And uh, a waitress, this is how the story goes, a waitress came came over to him and he started to, and he wanted to pick her up. And so he started, she was asking him like, you know, what are you doing? What you're, and he was watching the NCAA tournament. And he tried to explain to her with very passionately how the beauty of basketball and why uh, he was so into it, and he was kind of trying to impress her. Uh, and, of course, it failed miserably, and she dissed him and walked off. But he said uh, he said that he later started to think about 
what the uh, what what he had said to her and the the words that he had used to describe basketball and why he was so passionate about it. And the next morning he got up and he was and and he was supposed to go to brunch with somebody and they didn't show up right away. So he he had nothing to do and he started writing down the, those words that he said the night before on a cocktail napkin. And then he wrote some some music on that cocktail napkin as well and pieced it together and it became the song one shining moment and he he then was able to pass it off to a friend of his who actually was a former colleague of mine at si armin katayan who uh who also would eventually work at at uh, cbs and armin passed it along to some power that be at cbs it was actually supposed to be uh the the music behind the montage for the Super Bowl that year, but the Super Bowl ran long, and so they didn't have room for it. And so they said, "All right, well, we didn't use it for the Super Bowl. Why don't we just try it for the NCAA tournament this this year and see what happens?" Well, that was I don't know, thirty years ago or so, and it's still it's still the song that they run after the NCAA tournament, and it's still. It still means enough to me that uh, that the last class of every of every spring semester, uh, as I'm ushering my my students out, uh, I play that 1987 version of the uh, One Shining Moment. I talk over it and sort of give my farewell address, and of course the students are brought to tears as you would expect, and it is. Uh, <laughs> It's uh, so it's just always had this sort of special place in my heart. And unfortunately, uh, if you're if 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 this diatribe has uh, has brought up brought up some curiosity in your mind, compare the 1987 version to the to the 2021 version. Last night I'm listening to it. And now you don't have any of the lead in instrumentals anymore. You just have the song. It's not a very good version of the song, as we all know. There's been about 27 different people that sung it. Um, this this particular version was not one of my favorites, in, as far as the singer was concerned. But also, they've they've decided they needed to add all of this verbiage from the from the broadcasters that from the actual you know games during the tournament. Some of the announcers' little quips and whatnot that completely blot out the song itself. And essentially, I guess my point is that um, a shame, a shame on CBS for for um, destroying what was once a, a uh, an iconic uh, piece of the NCAA tournament and kind of turning it into a a, uh, a clip for for their own broadcasters who can now send it out and say, look, look, I'm part of one one shining moment. Who cares whether whether we actually uh, pay attention to what's going on behind the the announcing anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, I was just curious: is, is does one shining moment ever had ever had that sort of effect on you all? You um, you don't like it when you hear uh, Luther Vandross with major onions. You don't like that. <laughs> that doesn't do anything for you. Uh, uh, I like Luther Vandross if they just let him sing and, and shut yeah. up. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, that's thanks for for making us all think a little more about that song. You know, you mentioned the, the final fours. I don't get a chance to do this very much, but I, I'll say that I was fortunate enough uh, to go to ten final fours uh, to cover them. Ten. The last one was two thousand eight, 
And what my moment of appreciation, and I do, I tell people this all the time, it's so important when you get, a, when you're privileged to do something as, as we were to go to the Final Fours, which we love the event so much. My thing was right before the buzzer to start the introductions of Championship Monday night, I always waited. Everybody else would be out there and almost telling myself, if the, I wanted that feeling that a coach would have coming out to coach the guy. I was just coming out to write a, a, a mediocre column and and so i <laughs> i would wait till the last second and then i would walk make that walk out uh not necessarily with the coach but but just and then look up at the vastness of humanity and that's why i had no interest in covering this one because that's so much a part of it is it's just how many people are packed in to a football stadium to watch this one game and they can't even see the court but we're privileged enough to be right there two or three rows from the court and that's the best moment in sports writing for me is right before tip-off um, and well before deadline, just wondering who's going to win the championship, and here we are right there. But, you know, looking at that's that David Barrett thing is, uh, I wonder how much he's made off of it over the years. I get a sense that he probably hasn't made nearly as much as he should have. Um, he still has the rights. He still has the rights, so he gets paid royalties every time it's played. What do you think that, what's a fair estimate on what he, that one song has brought him? I mean, because he did, did it kind of as a, Armin did him a favor, got it to the right guy, and and uh, I can't imagine he signed a very lucrative first deal. David Barrett would tell you that it's it's given him financial security. Okay, so what's that mean? He's made ten million on it, or what? Well, he hasn't no gambled idea. it all away, Mike. Is what it means. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it. All right, well, made enough not money yet. That he's financially secure. Not yet, and then I and I was I, I called up the Wikipedia, which of course is never wrong about anything, and I feel so much relief here because I just uh, been thinking about it um, that I always have struggled to keep Teddy Pendergrass and Luther Vandross straight it it I don't I it's just a failure of mine you know sometimes actors kind of conflate and I just can't keep them straight I know they're both great and I know they both had you know major health issues and I know and they indeed each took a turn on one shining moment Teddy Pendergrass's version was used from 94 to 99 Luther's from 03 to 09, and then again since 2011, there was a one-year hiatus, and I can't believe this didn't take. Jennifer Hudson did it in 2010, and then they was never used again. So, um, yeah, that's and then uh, there was a 2016 period with the uh, Neo version. I don't remember that at all, but uh, yeah, it's um, it's good stuff. And yeah, you're right, Tim. They don't need the announcers on there. Get them out of there. And uh, the montage is great, and the song holds up. And and if you don't get some uh, goosebumps watching that, then you didn't watch enough of the tournament, and maybe you're just taking your bracket failure too seriously, Kimball. That probably happens to you. Well, 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 who needs the therapy now, boys? <laughs> Listen to you sentimental, emotional boys. Look at that little song at the end of the show. Uh, no, I still enjoy it. I, I, I guess they've changed it over the years. I, I didn't notice that much. I was like, oh, this is a little different, but it, it's still good. And, and yeah, it is. An, it really is, you know, something about like going through the whole tournament. I almost, the, the dork in me almost wishes they did it systematically. And, and it was like, you, you knew like, oh yeah, that's what happened in the uh, first round. And that's what happened in the second. And uh, yeah, and they do kind of do that, but it's, it's great. I, I hope it's still good for you, Tim, just not what it was. I, I mean, last night was really very, it was very disappointing. It, it forced me to have to, to, to go retro 
and listen to the 1987 version. It's just, it's kind of sad that, that, that I've been brought to that level. And you but, played it for your son, and what did he think? <laughs> no comment. It's a simple question. <laughs> you might yeah, have. no, I mean, it, it is. Uh, I, you played I it played for your son, and what? Oh, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead, ask me the question again, sorry. You what played you it say? for your son, and what did he think? Um, I, I, I feel like, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't really get it. And I get that because, um, you had to be part of that. You know, you had to be part of that. I, I, you know, I, those final fours that I went to, you know, I can still, I can still, you know, imagine myself there visualizing myself in those arenas, uh, and the feeling of, you know, the, the teams, remembering the teams that won those games and, just the excitement of being part of it. Um, you know, if you're not, if you're not really part of it, um, as he's never been in the, in the, the, uh, arena itself, it's a little bit of a different feeling, but, uh, but yeah, something about being in there and just seeing the, seeing the joy and getting to interview those guys as, you know, as it's happening and, and all that, um, you know, those are some of my favorite moments of, of my career at Sports Illustrated that, uh, that I just treasure. Yeah, that's. Um, can we start? Can we start a new tournament now? Can we just go? To, we're going to go through withdrawal. <laughs> we're going to go. I'm feeling it. NBA playoffs. Uh, Don't you I have just, the same thrill no, from the NBA? <laughs> no, no. There's nothing that's going to captivate. I mean, the Masters will captivate this weekend, but <laughs> basketball. No, it's 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 going to take college. I think we are all on record with that. So, um, that's our show. Uh, post uh, NCAA tournament and and. Uh, Again, you can leave comments if you like uh, on Substack or on the social media when we tweet these out or put them on Facebook, our Twit Three Point Range Facebook page. Thanks for listening. Uh, this is our labor of love. We appreciate having any of you along for the ride. And if you enjoyed it, spread the word. For Kimball Crosley, for Tim Crothers, I'm Mike Berardino. Thanks for listening.